Thank you, Marge. I'm going to invite you all to take your Bibles and turn to the New Testament to the book of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 1. We're going to begin a a new study tonight of Paul's uh, first letter to a young pastor by the name of Timothy. By way of reminder, uh, preaching is, is not a... It's not a spectator sport. It's a a time for all of us to be engaged, not so much you engaged with me as you and I together engaged with God's word. And so every time we we come to the word of God in this point in our service, it's a, a time for us to hear from God, hear what he has to say to us in his word. And tonight, again, we begin The book of 1 Timothy, chapter 1, I'll read the first seven verses. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions." And we're going to end our reading at that point tonight. What would God have us to be as a church? What kinds of things should we be focused on? What kinds of things should we be pursuing? I'm sure that if we were to poll the congregation, we would probably get a variety of answers, a variety of suggestions, suggestions maybe pertain to worship or evangelism or uh, Bible study or new ministry ideas. But there's a sense in which we we don't have to get suggestions. We don't have to to pull the congregation. And that's because God has given us a blueprint for his church. He's given us a, a clear instruction about the kinds of things that we should be focused on. In fact, if you jump ahead to chapter 3, take a look at verse 14. This is really the key verse for this book. He says in chapter 3, verse 14, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Paul is saying, Timothy, My my chief purpose in writing to you is to lay out how the church is to function. We we all have our ideas of what we think a church should be and a church should do. Uh, Maybe it has to do with um, style of worship. Maybe it has to do with small group ministry. uh, Maybe evangelism. And it's good and it's helpful to, to discuss these things. But there are certain core elements that that must be present in a church. And that's what we want to see as we, Lord willing, work our way through this book together. And so we know why Paul wrote to Timothy. 
we know he wrote to Timothy to say, Timothy, you're there in Ephesus, and I want to explain to you how you are to carry out the life and the ministry of your congregation, especially in these, these core important elements. But a couple other questions that we have to ask is, first of all, when did Paul write this book? At the end of the book of Acts, Paul is in prison in Rome. You might remember that. Uh, he had a certain amount of freedom in that imprisonment, but, but nonetheless, he was still in prison. When he wrote the book of 2 Timothy, which is right before he dies, he was also in prison. And so most scholars are in agreement that Paul wrote 1 Timothy sometime between his imprisonment in the book of Acts and his imprisonment when he wrote 2 Timothy, probably sometime around 65 AD. The second question, who was Timothy? Timothy was a a very close associate, a missionary assistant of Paul's. He was a relatively young man. Uh, He is now serving as the pastor of the church in Ephesus. Paul had planted this congregation about 12 to 15 years before this, and and Timothy is now serving as the pastor. Ephesus was a, a very important city in the ancient world. It was located on the west coast of Asia Minor, And and with a population of about 250,000 people, it was one of the largest cities in the first century. Ephesus was a a very wealthy city. It was a very influential city. It was a very learned city. Some people even say that it was like the, the New York City of its day. It contained one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the, uh, the Temple of Artemis. And so Paul is writing this letter to a young pastor who was ministering in a very large, for its day, very large urban context. And and he's laying out, again, this is God's blueprint for the church. And he starts this letter by giving Timothy a charge. And we want to look at this charge tonight in three parts. First of all, there is the authority behind the charge. Then there is the specifics of the charge. And then there is the strength to carry out the charge. Now, Principally, we are thinking tonight of how Paul is speaking to leadership in the church, to elders and deacons and pastors, but this this applies really to all of us, this charge that he gives Timothy. Paul begins this letter to Timothy by reinforcing his own credentials. He, He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. Notice that word apostle. What is an apostle? Well, the New Testament speaks of apostles in two different senses. First of all, there are apostles in the rather uh, generic sense. Uh, The word apostle simply means one who is sent, specifically one who is sent with a mission to carry out. And and in this sense, we, we find all kinds of men who were called apostles in the New Testament, in Acts 14, verse 14, Barnabas is called an apostle. In Romans 16, 7, uh, Andronicus and Junia are called apostles. Philippians 2, 25, Epaphroditus is called an apostle. So this word apostle is used in the New Testament sometimes in a rather generic sense. It's used to, to describe anyone who has been sent out by the church on a mission, typically to to preach, to proclaim, to minister the gospel. But there's a second sense in which the word apostle is used, and this is more like apostle with a capital A. 
There were 14 men in the New Testament who would be considered apostles with a capital A. There were the 12 original disciples of Jesus, plus Matthias after Judas hung himself, plus the apostle Paul. Now what was unique about these apostles? What was unique about the apostle with a capital A? First of all, these capital A apostles were sent by Jesus Christ himself. In other words, they weren't just sent out by a church, but they were sent out by Christ himself. That's why Paul can say here that he was an apostle by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus. Second, these capital A apostles had to have been eyewitnesses of the risen Christ. You might remember in Acts chapter 1 when the early church was determining who would replace Judas. They specifically said that 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 replacement apostle must have been an eyewitness to the risen Christ. Now you say, well, when did Paul see the risen Christ? Well, he saw the risen Christ on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9 when he was brought to saving faith in Christ. And so what Paul is doing here is he's, he's reminding Timothy of his credentials. He's, he's saying to Timothy, I have been called and sent as an apostle of Jesus Christ himself. This is helpful for Timothy because Timothy is now going to hear this, this isn't just the opinion of Paul. This isn't Paul writing a letter to Timothy and said, you know, I've been thinking a lot about your situation in Ephesus. I've been thinking about the fact, Timothy, that you're in, a, you're in a big urban center. You're in an influential, wealthy city. Uh, You've you got a lot going on in that city. And here's kind of what I think you should do. No, Paul is, is writing in an authoritative way as one who has been sent by Christ. This was authoritative for Timothy 2,000 years ago. This is authoritative for us today. He says, I am an apostle by the command of Christ Jesus. By the way, have you noticed in the New Testament, when you read your New Testament, have you noticed how often Paul reverses Jesus' name? He, He calls him not Jesus Christ, but he calls him Christ Jesus. He does it twice here in this passage. Have you ever thought, why does does Paul do that? I, I don't think any other New Testament author calls Jesus Christ Jesus. Well, first of all, this is a reminder to us that, that Christ isn't Jesus' last name. Sometimes we, we think that, but, but Christ is a title. It means anointed one. It, it refers to the fact that, that Jesus is the Messiah promised all throughout the Old Testament. And so Christ is his messianic name. Jesus is his human name that, that means the Lord saves. And, and some scholars believe that that the reason why Paul frequently reverses it and says Christ Jesus in his letters is because the first time that he himself had ever met Jesus, he met Jesus in Jesus' risen, glorified state, whereas the other New Testament authors first met Jesus during his earthly ministry. We don't know that for sure. It's an educated guess, but it does make sense. Now, we might ask the question, why would Why would Paul begin a letter to a good friend this way? If you were writing a letter to a really good friend, would you you begin it this way? I mean, Paul and Timothy were very close, very close. They they had done a lot of ministry together, um, and you would think that, that Paul might start out this letter in a little bit more loving, gentle, friendly tone 
than just saying, Timothy, I'm an apostle by the command of Jesus. Well, again, I think Paul does this to remind Timothy that that they had been given their offices by Christ. Paul doesn't serve simply because he appointed himself. And neither does Timothy. We we have to remember tonight that, that those who serve in the church are not in positions of leadership because they knew the right people. Those who serve in the offices of the church are not there because they had the right connections. They're not there because of their wealth or their influence in the business community. Those who serve Christ's church are there because Christ himself put them there. Paul puts it this way in Acts chapter 20. He says, pay careful attention to yourself and to all the flock, listen, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. It's God who puts men in office. And that puts a, that puts a certain weight on the offices of the church. A certain level of, of, of seriousness and, and sobriety. If you're a pastor or an elder or a deacon, you're, you're, you're not there simply because some people voted you in. You're there because the Lord of the church, the head of the church. You're there because King Jesus put you there. And it raises the question that, that those of us who serve have to ask ourselves, how, how am I carrying out the office that Christ has entrusted to me? Are, are, we, are we actively engaged in, in shepherding and loving and caring for the flock? Are we just there to, to, to bide our time, to get through it? Paul, I believe, feels the weight of this calling. He wants Timothy to feel the weight of this calling. And that's why he begins this letter this way. Those of us who have been called to office, we need to feel the weight of this calling as well. This is a, a very serious office in which Christ has placed us. Secondly, though, we see the specifics of the charge. This was not an easy place for Timothy to minister. I guess you could say that about any church. And, and that's because when you're, when you're working for God's kingdom, you are going to face Satan's opposition. When you are working for the things of God, Satan, of course, hates that. And, and Satan will do whatever he can to discourage you. He will do whatever he can to silence you. He will do whatever he can to defeat you. And it's easy to become discouraged. It's easy to feel defeated. It's easy to think, you know, what's the point? And, and so Paul begins this letter by, by laying out for Timothy, by reminding Timothy, this Timothy is what you're called to do. It may be hard. It will be hard. It will be difficult. You will face opposition. You will be discouraged. You will at times want to give up. But Timothy, don't forget who placed you in this office, and here's the charge he has given to you. Two things in this charge. First of all, he says, Timothy, you have to deal with false teachers. You have to deal with false teachers. Take a look at verse 3. 
As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Timothy, you need to stay in Ephesus. Timothy, you need to stay where God put you and you need to deal with these false teachers. Now, from what we read in the rest of this book and and also in 2 Timothy, we we can get the kind of basic idea that that Timothy was rather timid. He he struggled in in many ways and and perhaps he struggled with opposition. And and perhaps when, when things got tough here in Ephesus, he thought to himself, you know what, I'm gonna go somewhere else. I'm going to find another place to minister, find something else to do. I don't want to deal with these false teachers. I don't want to deal with opposition, so I'm going to move on. And Paul says, no, Timothy, I'm urging you to stay there. I'm, I'm, I'm urging you to stay there and, and deal with what's going on in that church for the sake of your congregation. Now, what exactly were these false teachers teaching? First of all, you'll notice that Paul describes it as a different doctrine. Do you see that phrase, different doctrine? Literally, it means teaching of another kind, teaching that that doesn't line up with the truth. You see, there was in that day, as there is in this day, a, a standard of sound doctrine. And and when these false teachers came around and they started teaching things that didn't line up with that standard, Paul says, Timothy, you need to deal with that. And and by the way, if I can make a little pitch for the importance of creeds and confessions, I will do that right here. Creeds and confessions are, are very important. Those of us who came to the Reformed faith later in life, we we may think, at least initially, that, boy, the Reformed Church is kind of weird. They, they seem to elevate creeds and confessions right alongside the Bible, but that's not what we do. Creeds and confessions lay out in a, a summary fashion what the Bible teaches. And our preaching and, and our teaching must line up with that standard. And, and when teaching comes along that deviates from that, that is contrary to that, When teaching comes along that that doesn't square up to what the Bible teaches as summarized in our creeds and confessions, it needs to be dealt with. It needs to be dealt with. Pastors and elders need to be on guard. They need to watch out for different doctrine. That requires that we know the creeds and confessions. That requires that we know the word of God. Paul then goes on and he explains what that different doctrine was. He says that these false teachers were devoting themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Now, we don't really know what these myths were. We don't know what these endless genealogies were. All we know is that the truth of Scripture wasn't being taught. Instead, the focus was on these myths, these fables. Maybe they were, I don't know, maybe they were reading into the Old Testament genealogies something that wasn't there. It's like people today, maybe you've come across these people who try to find all kinds of secret codes in the Bible or, or numerology, and they've, they've, they've uncracked the Bible. I had a guy message me a couple of weeks ago on Facebook. He probably figured out that I had been going through the book of, book of Revelation. And, and he sent me a, a private message on Facebook, and he said, I have cracked the code to figure out all the hidden messages in the book of Revelation. 
trash. Didn't need to read any more of that. Paul says here, Timothy, you need to put an end to that. You need to put an end to that kind of teaching. It's not beneficial for God's people. A teaching that, that just leads to speculation. These numbers add up this way, or these letters mean this. It, it's, it's fruitless. The, the main point we need to understand here is this. Paul is saying to Timothy, Timothy, there's not just a positive aspect to church ministry. It's, it's not just about teaching people the truth and, and loving people and praying with people and encouraging people. Those things are obviously very important. But in a faithful ministry, in a faithful church, there will be a warning against error. There will be a warning against those who are not orthodox. Sometimes people don't have a stomach for this. Sometimes people don't want to get into the weeds with this. They don't want to deal with false teachers. Some people want to be positive all the time, but the fact of the matter is that false teachers will come into a church. Wolves will come into a church, and, and Satan will use false teaching. He will use false gospels to try to destroy the people of God and destroy that church. That's just reality. And Paul is preparing Timothy for that reality. Paul, you remember, had to remind the, the Ephesian elders of this same thing, which, by the way, is the same church in which Timothy was the pastor. Acts 20, verse 29, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. He's saying, look, guys, elders in Ephesus, False teachers will come in and they will teach unsound doctrine and you need to be prepared for that. That's just the reality of church ministry. We wish that wasn't the case, but it is reality. John Calvin once said something that I think is very insightful. He said, the pastor ought to have two voices, one for gathering the sheep and another for driving away the wolves. Calvin was right. The ministry of the church cannot be focused only on gathering the sheep, as important as that is. The ministry of the church must also concern itself with those who teach error, with those who are ravenous wolves. Paul says, Timothy, you need to deal with false teachers. Second charge, though, is this. He says, Timothy, your goal in your ministry is love. Notice verse 5. He says, the aim of our charge is love. I prefer the way the New American Standard puts it. The New American Standard says the goal of our instruction is love. Paul says, Timothy, this is what I want you to aim for. Timothy, in your, in your preaching, in your teaching, in your shepherding of the congregation, your goal for your people is love. That's very helpful. The, the goal is not merely to stuff your head with doctrine. The, the, the goal is not merely to cause you to know certain truths. The goal is to produce in each one of God's people love. Love for God, love for neighbor. 
If you don't have that, what's the point, right? Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 13. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong, clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is the mark of the Christian, right? Jesus said in John 13, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And so that's our goal, that's our aim. And, and Paul says here, this is a love that, that flows from three things. That first of all, it flows from a pure heart. In other words, a, a heart that has been changed by the Holy Spirit, cleansed by the blood of Christ. It's a, it's a love that flows from a good conscience. What's that mean? Well, that, that's talking about the person who, who allows Scripture to tell him or her what is right and what is wrong. It is to be guided by God's word, not by our feelings, not by popular opinion. And third, it is a love that flows from a sincere faith. What this means is that you sincerely and wholeheartedly embrace Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You can't be a nominal Christian. You can't just mentally assent to some doctrines. You, you must embrace Christ sincerely as your Savior. And, and flowing from these three things, Paul says, is love. This is what the leadership of, of Zion and any church should desire to see in its people. Not merely that they can rattle off the 66 books of the Bible in order. Not merely that they can recite the Apostles' Creed or the Ten Commandments or the Lord's Supper or the Lord's Prayer from memory. Not merely that they can tell you what uh, uh, presuppositional apologetics is or the difference between infralapsarianism and supralapsarianism. That's not the goal of our instruction. Those things are helpful, those things have a place. But the goal of our instruction should be that the Holy Spirit would produce Christians who love God and who love others. That's not the goal. That's not the end result of false teaching. That's not the end result of endless speculations. Paul says in verse 6, certain persons by swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussion. You drift into these speculative ideas. You, you drift into these myths and genealogies. Look, you've lost the big picture. You've lost the big picture. You, you're no longer majoring on the majors. You're majoring on the minors. And majoring on the minors will not produce a healthy church. And ultimately, false teachers don't even know what they're talking about. Paul says in verse 7, they desire to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. False teachers come off as so confident and so knowledgeable, but in the end they are ignorant and, and they are leading God's people astray. So Paul starts this letter by saying, Timothy, this is, this is what you are to pursue. This is the charge I'm giving you. This is God's blueprint for you. Number one, deal with false teachers. And number two, Teach and preach and minister and pray 
that the, the instruction that you give will produce love in your people. Now, there's one other thing that we want to look at very briefly, and that is the strength to carry out this charge. Uh, leadership in the church is a daunting task. I, I can't tell you how many men have come to me after either being nominated as an elder or elected as an elder and saying to me, I don't know if I can do this. And my answer usually to them is, you're right, you can't do it. None of us can do it. None of us have within us what we need to, to, to do this work because it is a spiritual battle. Forces of evil are, are opposed against us. We, we know that we're weak. We, we know that we're insufficient in and of ourselves. Paul, do you have any encouragement here? Is there any encouragement for Timothy? Is there any encouragement for us? Well, actually there is. Look at verse 2. He says to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Now that was a, a common greeting in that day. That's how many letters would read. But, but it's not a greeting with, with no significance. It's not a greeting that has no meaning. In these words, Paul is encouraging young Timothy. And in these words, he's encouraging us tonight. When you think about whatever task you have before you, maybe it is church leadership. Maybe it's something at work. Maybe it's something at school. Maybe it's raising your children. Maybe, maybe it's something else. But you have some task in front of you and you think to yourself, I don't know that I can do this. You, you hear these words here that, that ought to give you a, a great deal of encouragement. Grace, mercy, and peace are yours. Grace is God giving us what we don't deserve. Mercy is, is kind of the opposite, God withholding from us what we do deserve. And, and peace refers to the fact that because of Jesus, we're, we're no longer God's enemies. We're his dearly loved children. And, and in this, we, we have a reminder we don't carry out the work of church ministry in our own strength. You don't go to work tomorrow in your own strength. You don't raise your children in your own strength. You don't do anything in your own strength. But you belong to God, Christian. You belong to the one who has poured out upon you his grace and his mercy. And now because of that you have peace with him. And he will give you what you stand in need of. You can cry out to him tomorrow morning. And you can rely upon him. But in all of this, the goal of our ministry is love. I love what Philip Ryken writes. He says, do you practice the doctrine of love as much as you love your doctrine? Did you get that? Do you practice the doctrine of love as much as you love your doctrine? 
He says, the better you understand God's grace in Christ, the more your life will overflow with zeal for the lost, love for the church, and compassion for the needy. If we are not great lovers, in other words, if we don't love one another, there is something wrong with our love or our doctrine or both. Do we practice the doctrine of love as much as we love our doctrine? This is a great book. It doesn't answer all the questions we may have about the ministry of the church, but it answers the important ones. And how much we need the Spirit of God in order to both love the truth of God's word and love one another as well. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we thank you for this opening section of 1 Timothy. We thank you that it still is relevant to us today every bit as much as it was when it was written 2,000 years ago. Lord, help us to carry out the work you've given to us in your strength. Help us to do so for your glory. And Father, we pray that uh, we here at Zion would be characterized by a love for the truth, a discernment for the truth, and a love for others. Lord, give us the strength we need to serve you in whatever calling you have placed us in. We pray this in Christ's name.